Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and uh, glad you're joining us. If you're a visitor, welcome. Um, and uh, we are continuing our walk through the book of Ephesians. Those of you who have been with us for a little while, you'll be glad to know. We finished up Ephesians 5, which means um, we're done talking about sex for a little while. That's good news. This morning, we get to talk about the result of sex. We're talking about parenting. Um, so we are moving to the next stage. All right, this morning, we get to talk about parenting. And the reality is, is that most parents have no idea what they're doing when they have kids. Let's just be honest, right? I mean, how in the world are you supposed to train for something like that? You know, there is no practice run, right? You, you, you have a child, right? When, when um, Lauren and I found out that we were having a child when, you know, we'd been married for about three years, we're like, hey, it's, it's about time, right? And, and, and so then, you know, found out we were pregnant and we had Victoria and brought her home. And um, I remember just thinking she was <laughs> the most incredible, most beautiful thing on the face of the earth, Right. I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I really didn't. I call this the Ricky Bobby effect. Um, are you guys familiar with Ricky Bobby? Ricky Bobby is, um, he's just a winning machine, that guy. But um, it, it, Will Ferrell, if you've seen one Will Ferrell movie, let's be honest, you've pretty much seen them all. He loves to play characters, and this is from his own words. He loves to play characters with unearned confidence. I love that. He loves to play characters with unearned confidence, which is really funny in his movies. It's not so funny in our homes. Let's be honest. A lot of us go home with a lot of confidence, right? I'm not going to be like that other family, right? We, we ignore all the history of family failures throughout the entire world, and we just assume, well, of course, I'm going to do it right because I love this kid, right? And this kid's beautiful, and, and I'm me, right? Filled with unearned confidence, um, the Ricky Bobby effect. I, you know, the reality is I think God kind of designed it that way. If we really knew what we were getting into, very few of us would have children, and the race would already be extinct. Um, parenting is hard. It, it, is, it is one of the most challenging, if not the most challenging task anybody can endeavor to do in their lifetime, um, to take an infant, helpless, and raise them to an autonomous, healthy adult, and, and to do it in ways that are self-denying, and, and, and you know, I mean, it's, it, it is hard. It is hard. So there's really no way to train, but what I can tell you is that God gives us a lot of wisdom about how to raise our kids, a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of wisdom in Scripture, and honestly, a lot of that wisdom has become foreign to us in our culture. There's a lot of so-called parenting wisdom in our culture, a lot of advice on, on how to parent and, and how to um, raise our kids. And all you have to do is look around to find out that that advice isn't working out so well, right? You really just need to look um, at the incredible level of dissatisfaction, the incredible level of self-destructive behavior, the incredible level of pain that is evident in most of our society to recognize that, that, that we're just not getting it right. So I think it's really wise of us, honestly, to turn back to the ancient scriptures, to the God who actually designed family, and let him inform how we go about doing it. Now, we can't cover all that material this morning, but I do want to invite you to a parenting forum. It's a seminar that we're going to host that specifically focuses on some of the principles involved in, in raising our kids. That's going to be on Saturday, April 13th. 
Okay, Saturday, April 13th. It's going to be in the morning. Um, and we're several, I guess, we're, I don't know, three, four weeks out from it. Mark your calendar. If you can come to it, it'll be awesome. We're going to provide childcare so that our parents are equipped to be here together. Um, and and it, we're going to encourage you to, to actually sign up on the city. The city is our online communication tool um, that allows us to push information out to you and allows us to host events and get people to sign up and stuff like that. If you're not on the city, it'll take you 15 seconds, literally. All you need to do is go to Connection Point. Somebody will help you sign up for the city. And then you'll be connected to our online communication tool. You'll be able to sign up for events like this. Part of the reason that's um, going to be valuable is that I haven't quite decided what we're going to narrow in and focus on totally at that forum. I would love to get some input from our parents. What are the things that you want to discuss? What are some of the challenges? So if we get a dialogue going on the city, we can talk a little bit about what are going to be the most valuable things for us to cover. So if you're a parent or you're planning to be a parent, um, this will be valuable to you. All right, here's the deal. We don't have to be Ricky Bobby. Um, we can do better. So this morning, let's dig into our passage and talk a little bit about family dynamics and how the gospel helps redeem family dynamics because kind of the, where we're going this morning, the reality is, is all parenting provokes a response. All parenting provokes a response. And here's the deal. We're either going to provoke anger or we're going to provoke our children toward grace. So that's where we're going. All right, take a look at uh, chapter 6 and we'll look at verses um, 1, 2, and 3. Children, we're going to start there. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, we're going to begin our looking at parenting by looking at children. Children here, small children. Um, this verse is, is um, focused on people who are still dependent on their parents. They owe their parents a debt of obedience. Now, you guys think about this. I mean, who has sacrificed for you more than your parents? I mean, they have given up their lives basically. They have sacrificed their bank accounts. They have given up uh, most of their sanity for the purpose of, of helping you become an autonomous, independent adult, right? Um, and, and, and as a child, you owe them a debt of obedience, right? Obedience is not optional in the scripture. There are roles in the family. That's the way God designed it because there are roles in the Godhead. God himself has roles, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Leadership, assertion, um, submission, respect. Um, and, and we see that reflected throughout the created order. God created the family to reflect his character. And in the family, um, children owe their parents a debt of obedience. And, and so there is a command that they are, in a sense, to obey their parents. Why? Because their parents know better than them. Their parents have kind of been ahead, right? And, and when, when kids are little, they don't question that. They just don't like it, right? It's like my little three-year-old Esther looking at me and saying, you're not the boss of me, right? That became like the mantra for two years, right? It was basically nobody has authority over me, let alone you, definitely not you sort of a deal, right? Um, and then moving into the teenage years where, where teenagers basically um, won't even look at you across the table, right? They'll eat the food you prepare, but they won't talk to you. Um, here's the deal. We need to obey our parents. Now, I know that we're talking to a room full of young adults when, when do you, like, because when you go from obedience to honoring, if you take a look at verse 2, honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with promise. The broader principle is honoring your parents. And you move from the obligation to obey to the obligation to honor, which is different. It's in the same circle of behavior, same circle of attitude, but it's a different attitude or different posture towards your parents. When do you make that transition? I would say that that transition takes place when you move from dependence to independence. When your parents are still paying all your bills, 
feeding you all your food, taking care of all your problems, you owe them a debt of obedience. You basically are um, still, uh, wrong word, but leeching off of them, okay? Sucking the life out of them and out of their bank account. Um, there is a level of, of um, obligation that comes with that. Children, obey your parents. When you are still fully dependent on your parents, you still have an obligation to obey your parents. They have the right to tell you what to do and not to do, right? And that becomes really hard for high school students because like, well, I'm an adult. I'm an adult. Well, go out and get a job, right? Pay for your own apartment. Feed yourself. Wash your own underwear, right? Then start talking about how grown up you are and how independent you are. Until you're ready for that, you owe your parents an obligation of obedience, um, as you move into adulthood, that transitions to needing to honor your parents because the goal of parenting isn't to keep you dependent on them forever. The parent job description is really kind of weird. Their job is to basically make themselves obsolete, not relationally, not in regards to relationship and love, but, but ultimately what they're trying to do is launch you out to become independent, autonomous, wise, in, uh, you know, making your own decisions, bearing your responsibility for your own choices, an independent person, an adult, right? They're trying to ultimately pull themselves out of that process so that you can stand on your own two feet. And as you move into that, you owe less and less of an obligation to obey your parents, but you owe no less of an obligation to honor your parents, right? Because as an adult, you may disagree with your parents about the way you do something or a purchase you're going to make. As an independent, autonomous adult, you have to make your own decisions, but you also have to honor your parents. So there is a transition where you move from obeying to staying within. You, you now have to obey God. You, you always still have to obey, but you're going to obey God, uh, but you, you never lose the responsibility of actually honoring your parents. Um, and so we see this progression where children, small children, need to obey their parents. Um, adult children, which we all are, if, no matter how old you are, you still have a parent, um, you are to honor your father and mother. Now he goes on to say, this is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you, that it may, be, may live long in the land. What he means by that is that when you look at the Ten Commandments, this is the first of the Ten Commandments. This is one of the Ten Commandments. This is one of the Big Ten. Um, when you look at the Ten Commandments, this is the first one that actually has a promise attached to it that says, hey, if you do this, it's in your self-interest. If you do this, it'll be better for you. In fact, it's the only of the ten. It's the first and only of the ten that, that comes with basically a promise. And what it is, is it says, look, obey your parents. Honor your parents in the Lord, um, and, uh, and, and, and your life will be long in the land. Now, that was a promise to the Israelites, and to the Israelites, that basically meant that God was going to help them prosper in their pursuit of life, right? For them, it very much was attached to the land of Israel, that God was going to, they were going to go to this land flowing with milk and honey, and, and, and God was going to bless them with the fullness of life there. And that's how we would take that today. Not necessarily that we're going to have a longer lifespan than anyone else, but that God will bless us with a fuller life. Here's the deal, you guys. Learning to honor your parents will bless your life. Learning to honor your parents will, in fact, make your life richer and, and, and more full of, of blessing. Um, even, you know, even if your parents weren't perfect, which means everybody, <laughs> nobody's parents were perfect. Nobody's home life was perfectly ideal, right? 
we have to learn how to honor our parents um, in the Lord. Now, I love that little phrase, in the Lord, because it modifies both obey and honor, right? As children, we're called to honor our parents. Now, sadly, there are some parents that are bad parents and some that are truly even wicked parents. A child is not called upon to obey a wicked parent who is leading them into sin. They still have to honor that parent, but they are not called to follow them into sin. That would be righteous rebellion. Very few of us, honestly, have to deal with the challenge of righteous rebellion. (laughs) Most of us are dealing with very selfish rebellion, right? We just want to be bosses of ourselves. We don't want to have to submit to anyone. As adults, we're called on to honor our parents in the Lord, which basically means that, that we see God as the giver of all authority. He's the one that's given me my parents, and in honoring my parents, I honor God. And if you're in a stage right now where you're looking at your parents and you're saying, they don't deserve my honor for whatever reason... My question for you is, does God? And if God does, then you need to learn how to give the gift of honor to your parents. Because you are to honor your parents in the Lord. And as you learn to honor your parents, your life will be fuller. God will free your heart in powerful ways to experience delight and joy and fullness of life in unique and powerful ways. That's the promise that comes with the command. Now, the text moves from talking from children to children that are moving into young adulthood and then into adulthood. And now we're going to move on to talk about children who actually grow up and become parents. Take a look at uh, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we, we, we move from this idea of children to young adults to, to children who become parents. And in that, what we see is this multi-generational progression of parenthood, right? It's the same thing we all um, go through. It is, it is a universal human experience. There's no other way to get there, right? You will start as a child. You will become a young adult moving into independence. And you will, if you start a family, ultimately become a parent, right? And you'll start the cycle all over again, and your children will go through the same cycle. That is the story of, of human history. And with that comes this this idea that all parenting is multi-generational. All right, let me unpack that a little bit and, and, and tell you what I mean. All right, imagine yourself coming to, <clears throat> it's a beautiful day, um, you know, well, this might be kind of a beautiful day, but I mean like blue skies, puffy white clouds, warm, like it was a couple days ago, right? Uh, even warmer, like in the 70s, you know, and, and you come up to this pond and it's perfectly still. And you can look in the water and you see the reflection of the sky, and you can see the reflection of the clouds. Some of you immediately, the first, your first impulse is to just sit on the bank of that pond and look at the reflection of the clouds as they go by and enjoy the tranquility. Others of you are more like me. The first thing you're going to do is go try to find the largest rock possible, right? And you're going to throw it in. And you're probably not going to stop with one right? It's like you're probably going to throw every rock on the bank into the water simply because you like to hear the kerplunk. You like to see the, you know, it's just we like to cause a little bit of chaos. Um, that's fun. But honestly, that's a lot how, like, how, how parenting works. <laughs> Talk about another effect here, um, the ripple effect of parenting. All parenting is multigenerational. In other words, there are ripples. There are kerplunks, things that happen, and then ripples that go out from there that don't stop. There, there, are, there are ways that your parents affected you that are directly affecting the way you parent your kids. 
There are things that your parents experienced in their home that directly influenced the way they parented you. All parenting is multi-generational. Your grandparents influence the way your parents related with you and your parents are relating the way you are relating to your children. One action of one generation ripples into the next. All these actions provoke responses. Every action, every cause has an effect. Every action will ultimately produce a ripple. And here's the thing, and we're going to kind of explore this a little bit. Some of those ripples are good. Some of those things are, are valuable. Some of you have tremendous work ethics because your grandfather, honestly, your grandfather, for whatever reason, was a hard worker. He believed in an honest day's wage. He, he believed in doing for himself everything he could, not asking anyone to do anything for him he could do for himself. Well, that shaped the way he, he um, sh- you know, parented your, your mom or your dad. And that shaped the way your mom or your dad parented you. That's a good ripple, Right? We call that the good old-fashioned Protestant work ethic, that idea that we're just going to work hard. There's something godly in just working hard. That's a great ripple. Some, some, some are negative, honestly. Some of you had harsh parents. And in, in re- response to that, you've determined you're not going to be a harsh parent. Well, the ripple effect is maybe you're going to swing over to the far side and you're going to become an indulgent parent. You're so determined not to be harsh that, that you're going to become overindulgent with, with your kids. And you may find that even as you're being overindulgent with your kids and trying to make them happy, you're having a really hard time being happy yourself. You're finding that, that you have a difficult time receiving love and affection and a hard time expressing love and affection. Those are all the ripple effects that come from the multi-generational effect of parenting. Your parents having an indirect ripple effect on the way you raise your kids. And your parenting will impact not just your kids, but their kids' kids. And so I want to look at this full dynamic um, and talk about how we can parent wisely um, as we consider the way all of this works out. So verse 4, dig into this a little bit. First of all, it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I want to pause on that very first word, fathers. Why does it say fathers? Well, dads, it's because I believe that we are called as men to be the primary spiritual, emotional influence in our homes. Dads are given the responsibility of leading when it comes to raising the children. Now, for some people, that's a really foreign idea. And that's actually a cultural ripple effect that comes from industrialization. Before industrialization, we were primarily an agrarian society. We lived on farms, right? We, we lived by trades. And what would happen is, is a father would, at a very early age, take his children with him into the field or into the shop because he needed their help. And over the course of that process, he would invest into them relationally, but also with skills. He needed their help, but he would also help them become men and help them become women, right? And so children were not divorced from the process of living life. They actually became an integral part of living life. And fathers were the primary shaping influence on that working environment. With the industrial revolution, what you found was suddenly jobs were no longer at home or on the farm or in the shop, but they were away from home in a factory. And dad would disappear for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. 
and he no longer became the primary formative um, influence on his children, and raising children shifted culturally to be seen as women's work. And so it was the mom's job to raise the kids while dad went off and earned the money. And dad was so exhausted when he came home from work, he felt entitled to simply check out and stick up his feet and have a beer and watch TV or whatever they did back then, right? That's the modern equivalent. Uh, and, and, and there was a cultural shift where, where women became the primary, seen as the primary agents in raising their children. Th- that is not the way God wired the family. Guys, God has given us the sacred responsibility of leading our homes. Am I in any way diminishing the importance or value of mothers? Not a chance. What I am saying is that we have more than enough passive dads on our hands. We don't need more. We need active dads. We need dads that are, that are leading themselves and, and leading their homes in godliness and toward godliness, that are taking responsibility for the raising of their children, that are investing into the emotional and spiritual well-being of their children, that are not just about, I'm going to earn my money and find my comfort, but are actually thinking about how they can leave a godly heritage. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Now, here's the deal. Guys, if you check out, you are provoking your children. Now, maybe your wife's going to step up and totally fill the gap. You know, some of your wives, you, you married way up, and, and she's a godly spiritual leader in the home and, and is investing and, and is all of that sort of stuff on your behalf. That's awesome. Your kids are blessed by that, but they still feel your absence. Your passivity, your, your inactivity. They still feel it deeply because they were wired to need it. Now, for single moms out there, um, I just want to encourage you. By God's grace, you can do what, you know, God didn't, you, you were never designed to raise your child on your own. But that doesn't mean God can't meet you in that challenge. He can, and he'll give you the grace to do um, what you need to do. You need to learn to, to trust in the grace of God. But it doesn't change the fact, fathers, that, that God wired us to lead and to take initiative in the raising of our children. And then he goes on to say there are two ways ultimately to parent. One way to parent is described by the result that it brings. One way to parent leads our kids to anger. Fathers, don't provoke your children to, to anger. Now, now, Paul may have been specifically talking about um, the fact that he just told kids they had to submit. And then he turns around and says to fathers, you know, your kids have to submit to you, but just because you have positional authority, don't use it to abuse them. Don't provoke them to anger by abusing them. And I think that is incorporated in what he's saying, but I think Paul's actually talking about a much broader result that comes from from parenting, which causes our kids to be provoked to anger. And by anger, I mean a whole world of negative emotions, not just anger, right? Um, I talk about anger and, and all of its ugly cousins, right? We're provoking in our children's heart fear, insecurity, alienation, pride, entitlement. There are a lot of ways for us to parent in ways that we're provoking things in our children's heart that honestly are in the world of anger. It causes them to feel less whole, less content, less secure, and more unstable and more dislocated, right? In comparison to that, Paul says there's another kind of parenting. And this one, he doesn't describe it by the results. He describes it by the methods. He says, on the other hand, Instead, raise your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. 
These two aspects of parenting, instructing and disciplining, are incredibly vital. Two sides of the same coin. Um, and, and, and both of them, there's a, there's a world of things we can unpack in connection with that that we don't have time or we're not going to take time this morning to do. Um, I will let you know that, that um, about a year and a half ago, we preached a sermon series through Proverbs. And in that series, I did a, a mini parenting, um, two, two sermon series on what I called outcome-based parenting. In other words, envisioning in your head what you want the outcome of your parenting to be, and then intelligently designing the instructing and disciplining of your children to get there. We're going to make those sermons available online. All you need to do is be on the city, and we'll post a link to those um, if, if you want to take a look at those. Um, for this morning, what I want to do is take a look at how these two actions, disciplining and instructing in the Lord, ultimately answer two of the most basic questions in life. Dan Allender, in his book, How Children Raise Parents, um, said that at the heart of every child are two fundamental questions, two fundamental questions that drive almost all of their behavior and and all parents ultimately have to answer. And in fact, all parents are answering all the time, one way or the other. And those two questions are this, am I loved and can I have my own way? Am I loved? And can I have my own way? Why those two questions? Because I think we see in that the tension that comes from being people who are created in the image of God but have been broken by sin. We know we were created to experience infinite love. We were created by the God of love to experience the unconditional, infinite outpouring of his love. And our sin alienates us from the presence and love of God. And we are born with an aching need for love. We desperately want to know not only that we are loved, but that we are lovable because that speaks to our worth. I want to know that I have value. I want to know that I have worth. I want to know that I am, in fact, lovable. So we're born with this this continual question of our heart. Am I loved? We're also born with the flip side, which is the schizophrenic side of it which is, can I control the world? That's the sin part, right? Um, Children are born as little angels into this world, right? And it doesn't take us long to realize they are, in fact, little demons. They are hell-bent on taking the world and bending it to their will. Are they not, parents, right? All of these little cherub little cards, they were not those greeting cards, little angels, right? Those were all made by people who didn't have kids. They really were. Because when you have kids, you realize, man, that kid... He is, it's all about him, right? It is all about him. Can I have my way? And it's not just a question, is it? It's a demand. Every child is born with an insatiable need for love and an insatiable uh, claim for power. They want to know they're loved by God, but they want to be God. And that's the paradox, the schizophrenic nature of us being created in the image of God, but having been broken by sin. And it creates this tension within us that parents desperately, or kids desperately need their parents to answer and speak into. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to go through how we answer these questions. No home is 100% consistent in how they answer these questions. A lot of times, homes will go through seasons or phases as they answer those questions in different ways as parents themselves grow and change. 
Um, and some of these parents, uh, most of these parents, are, are well-meaning and absolutely doing their best. Well-meaning and absolutely doing their best. Occasionally, there are some parents who aren't. They're bad parents. They're wicked people. And, um, and they're not doing their best. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But what I want to do is talk about how there are four ways we can answer those two questions and how they produce four different kinds of homes. Okay? Because I think it's important for us to analyze our, the home of our origin as well as talk about the, where the home, the home we're, we're planning to develop. Okay? So let's talk about how we answer the questions. The first home is what we call the yes, yes home. The yes, yes home. Yes, you're loved. Yes, you can have your own way. Now, let's be honest. Most of us wish we were raised in this home. Right? I mean, this just sounds like an idyllic environment for most of us, especially in our teenage years. Yes, you're loved. Yes, you can have the car. Yes, you're loved. Yes, you can go out on Friday night. Yes, you're loved. Yeah, I'll give you money right? Yes, yes. I love it. I love it, right? That, that just frees me to, to oh man, I'm, I am delightful and I'm king, right? And that's honestly what most of us want to know. We want to know that we uh, are loved like God and have the power of God. Um, this is not the perfect home, you guys. It's really not. Um, this is a, a when, it's, when it's in its extreme, it is a dysfunctional home, and in fact, in its extreme, it's an abusive home. Why do I say that? Because in this home, the parents refuse to be parents. God didn't give parents to kids because their kids needed friends. God gave parents to kids because kids need parents. They, they don't need buddies. They have kids for that. They need parents. They need parents. And this kind of home, um, this, this is a permissive home. This is a home where the parents tend to be wimps, where it's really just about, um, I, I want to make you happy so you'll make me happy. It's a manipulative home. There's usually a lot of conflict in a home like this. The problem is they're just fighting about the wrong things and for the wrong goals. Usually it's the parents getting ticked off that they're getting walked all over and not being respected. When they're giving up so much, right? The, the parents become martyrs. I don't know what's wrong with these kids. I give them everything they want. I do everything I'm supposed to do. Actually, you don't. You're actually provoking your kids to anger. A lot of times these parents are driven by unrealistic views of the human heart. They think if I can just free my kids to be themselves, then they'll find themselves and be happy. The problem is the Bible tells us that the human heart is a divided thing. There's part of the human heart that aspires um, to, to greatness because ultimately God created it for that. But, but Scripture also tells us that our hearts are wicked, dark, and, and deceitful places. If we give our kids over to the desires of their heart, we're giving them over to a path of self-destruction. That's not love. That, that's a, that's a, a weak parent who's unable to exercise emotional strength and stability to help their child grow into emotional strength and stability. That's usually a parent who, who possibly is looking for their kid to be their friend instead of their kid. They're looking to their child to meet a need that isn't being met in their own lives. Potentially, it's a, a single parent who is longing for the support of a spouse, but for whatever reason, because of their own social dysfunctions, have been divorced from healthy adult community and instead looks to their child to be their friend. You need to understand that, that in its extreme cases, this is genuine emotional abuse. You're putting a weight of re- relational expectation on that child that child cannot meet. 
And that child will grow up keenly, painfully aware that you needed him or her to do something for you, to be something for you they couldn't be. And they're going to be plagued by guilt, and they're going to ultimately be alienated in anger against you because you put them in an inappropriate relationship. You put inappropriate relational weight on them. That's, that's, that's not healthy, right? It could be a parent who's driven by guilt for whatever reason because they've made a bad choice in their life. And they spend the rest of their life trying to compensate for that guilt by overindulging their children, by just doing everything for their kids as if somehow they can pay off this debt, which the kid doesn't even understand. The kid doesn't know anything about this debt or understand this debt. All they know is that their parent is ultimately looking to that child to do something for them that they, they innately know they can't do. To be something for them they know that, that they can't be. This, is, this can be, in its extreme cases, an emotionally abusive and manipulative home where parents aren't loving their kids. They're using the love of their kids to bolster their own emotional instability. And when parents don't have the emotional maturity to stand strong for their kids and ultimately even to stand against their kids when they need to for their best interest, they put unrealistic expectations on their kids. And then they get whiny about it when their kids don't turn out well. They become martyrs and they feel sorry for themselves, feeling like, oh man, haven't I just given up everything? Haven't I just done everything for my kids? Instead of recognizing that part of the problem was the way they provoked their children. Here's the deal. Wimpy parents produce spoiled children. Wimpy parents produce spoiled children. Um, and what's going to happen is it will provoke in the heart of the child insecurity and, and entitlement. It's going to reduce their ability to withstand resistance and discomfort. And it will um, hurt their emotional development into becoming independent, autonomous, healthy adults. The ripple effect of that is, is negative. So the yes, yes home, um, in its extreme case, abusive. What about the no, no home? What about the no, no home? We always hate the word no. That's got to be worse, right? Well, it's, it's not a whole lot better. Honestly, I don't know that it's a whole lot worse, to tell you the truth. We'll take a look at this. The, the no, no home says this. Am I loved? No. <laughs> no. Can I get my own way? No. <laughs> no. Um, why, why would you have a home where it's no, no? Well, it could be that the parents are just plain mean. Occasionally that happens. I don't love you, and no, you can't have your own way because I like to see you suffer. <laughs> That's usually not the case, though. The no, no home is usually, honestly, there's love in that home. Because it takes work to say no to your kids, doesn't it, parents? It really does. It costs you something to say no to your kids. And so if you have a home that is saying no, no, probably what you have are parents that have a very difficult time expressing and receiving love. But they express their love through high expectations. And so they're constantly demanding more of their children but never giving them the emotional support they need because they themselves have a difficult time both giving and receiving. The no-no home. This is a home that's driven by high standards. There's often perfectionists there. I mean, you might picture this as the militaristic dad or the overly religious mother. And here's the deal with these parents. A lot of times what they're saying is, 
subtly, not usually overtly, but subtly what they're saying is, if you perform, then I'll love you. If you meet these standards, then I will delight in you. If you attain this mark, if you just get good enough grades, if you're just a good enough athlete, if you, if you, if you are just popular enough or beautiful enough or achieve enough, then I will give you my affection. The problem is this parent is, is emotionally immature and blocked off and hurt in some ways. So, th- so what ends up happening is when you achieve a goal, you don't get the reward. There's just a new goal. You know, when you achieve whatever it was, you got an A on the test, you come home, and, and, and it's not let's celebrate the A on the test. It's, well, what about this? What about this area you need to improve in? What about this area you need to get stronger in? What about this, right? And, and in its extreme form, this can be an abusive home. Because ultimately what it says is you're not lovable until you perform well enough. And, and since you never perform well enough, I'll never delight in you. I'll never show my unconditional, my, my love isn't unconditional, so I won't show it to you. Now, this provokes a child to anger. And it often produces kids that have a very hard time both receiving and giving love. They close off that part of their heart. That, that, that question is so poorly answered that, that in extreme cases, a child can become um, completely closed off. They have a difficult time because they've just stopped asking that question because it hurt too much to ask, am I loved? And so pretty soon, they have a difficult time both expressing and receiving love because of the ripple effects of, of that's the provoked, they've been provoked to anger. A lot of times it produces a deep sense of inadequacy. Since they've spent their entire life trying to attain this thing that they couldn't get, that would finally get them the affection and love of their parents, and they never could quite get it. They have a deep, deep sense of inadequacy that they never measure up. Now, the schizophrenic nature of the human heart is that they're also usually filled with pride. Kind of weird that you can feel completely degraded and completely puffed up at the same time, but Welcome to sinful humanity, right? We do that. So you feel both alienated and superior to others. So you put perfectionist attitudes and, and expectations on others. They can never measure up to your standards, and yet you feel like you never measure up. Some of these people are going to spend the rest of their lives trying to live up to invisible expectations from parents that are now dead. Still craving the approving word from their mother or from their father long after they're even able to give it. The ripple effects of being provoked to anger, right? This is not better than the yes, yes home. It's not always worse, to tell you the truth. A lot of times you'll grow up in a home like this and, and, and an adult will get to a point where, where they can say, you know what, my, my dad never said he loved me, but I know he did because he demonstrated it, right? So it's not, a, it's not the perfect home, but sometimes it's not the worst home, right? A no-no home isn't necessarily worse than a yes, yes home, even though... It could be better. The worst home is the next one, honestly. The worst home is the no, yes home. This is the home that says, no, you're not loved. Yes, you can have your own way. No, you're not loved. Yes, you can have your own way. This is the neglectful home. Um, it communicates, I really don't care if you exist. That's why it's the worst home. It gives the wrong answer to both questions. A child who's raised in this home often feels worthless, unlovable, and unable to give love. Um, They're often provoked to aggression or extreme passivity. They're either going to burn down the world or they're going to withdraw and completely turn away from it. These are parents that are often in crisis themselves. This is not normal parenting. Usually this is a parent who's in crisis themselves, 
and, and they're, they're so absorbed in their own hurt, they're so absorbed in their own whatever, that, that the children become a nuisance to them. These are the parents, when you ask them, where are your kids? They're like, I don't know, and I don't care. Their kids are, are um, in the way, right? This could be a drug addict. A lot of stories of, of people who come from homes where, the, where, where mom or dad are so absorbed in their addiction that the kids really do become a nuisance, right? Mom and dad, they don't even, they don't clean up after them. They don't feed them. They don't provide for them. The kids have to become completely independent. I don't love you, and you can do whatever you want. I don't care. Just stay out of my way, right? But here's the thing. It's not just drug addicts. It's work addicts too. There are some guys that are so wrapped up in their pursuit of success that they completely neglect their children. They, they have this measure of success in front of them. Whatever it is, it's going to feed this deep need within them. Whatever it's, maybe it's a huge 401k or, or a lot of, of, of recognition at work or an award. Or here's the, We can self-medicate with a lot of different things. You can self-medicate with heroin or you can self-medicate with a great career. But parents who are self-medicating are numbing themselves and deadening themselves to the things that are truly valuable and real in life. And in the process, they are communicating to their kids. I don't love you, and honestly, just go do whatever you want. These are highly neglectful and abusive homes. Um, when, when a child receives a message, you don't even matter enough for me to care, it's really hard for that child um, to find any kind of emotional balance in life. But by God's grace, there's hope. Um, but these are, this is, I would say, the worst home. Now, there's one last home that I want to take a look at, and this is the home that ultimately I think we all want to shoot for, honestly. Now, again, very few of us come from homes that were one of these and one of these exclusively. Most of us come from homes that, that man, our parents kind of went through phases and they were in and out and, and different things like that. Um, most of our parents wanted this, this last kind of home, which is the most healthy kind. And it's the kind we want to shoot for for ourselves, and that's the yes-no home. The yes-no home... Um, says this, yes, you're loved. No, you can't have your own way. Yes, you're loved. No, you can't have your own way. Our verse says, parents, don't provoke your children to anger, insecurity, dislocation, fear, anxiety. Don't, Don't provoke them that way. Instead, provoke them toward God. Provoke them to grace through the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I believe that those two activities answer the two most basic heart questions, right? When we're instructing, you know, raising our kids in the instruction of the Lord, what do you think that means? You don't have to say anything out loud, but just think about it for a minute. When the verse tells you to, to raise your kids in the instruction of the Lord, how would you fill that blank in? What would that look like to you? For most religious people, that's going to mean teach your kids to know the right things and do the right things. Teach them to know the right things and do the right things. But let me ask you something. Is that the way God instructs you? Is that really the way God approaches you? Is that the gospel? The good news? Just know the right things and do the right things? I don't think so. See, the gospel is God loves you. And he demonstrated that love by dying for you while you were still walking in rebellion against him. He loves you unconditionally. Not based on what you've done to provoke his love, but based on what Christ has done to earn his love. His love for you is unending, wild, free, unconditional. Because Christ met all the conditions of judgment on your behalf. 
And since God loved you, when you really get that, when you really get that, it breaks your heart. And you come to love God. That's very different than than just religious behavior. That's very different than just knowing the right things and doing the right things. Scripture tells us we love him because he first loved us. It breaks our heart and it remakes it. Now, does it change the way we behave after that? Absolutely. If you love God and you realize he's the giver of good gifts, you realize that his rules are not keeping you from good things, but actually guiding you to them. You realize that ultimately he's the greatest reward, not the gifts that he gives. You want to delight in his love because his love is so delightful. What does it mean to raise our kids in the instruction of the Lord? It means to raise them in such a way that their hearts are undone by his love for them so that they come to love him back. It's not about rules. It's about relationship. It's not about do these things and then you'll be accepted. It's about he did these things so you are accepted. It is unconditional, wild, and free love. Unending, unreserved. Even in the midst of folly, rebellion, and sin. Does God only love us when we behave well? Thank God, no. (laughs) Otherwise, he never would. He loves us not because we're lovely, but to make us lovely. So the gospel, the instruction of the gospel speaks to the heart condition of our children and communicates to them the God of the universe delights in them. Not because they themselves are infinitely delightful, but because Jesus is. But because they believe in Jesus, God infinitely delights in them, loves them unconditionally, invites them freely into his presence. Am I loved? Man, it doesn't get any better than that. The God of the universe, so fully identifying himself with me, that he paid the price of everything I did wrong, died in my place and rose again so I could be forgiven. Am I loved? Absolutely. Can I have my own way? No. (laughs) No, the gospel tells us you're not God. There there is a God and you're not him, right? And and when we come into relationship with God, we realize that, that he isn't just this great grandfather in the sky that wants to give out hard candy, right? He's this, this, this guy that isn't just about giving out cosmic hugs. He's a guy that wants to change us because he loves us. He loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. He will change us so that we become more like Jesus, can experience more of his delightful uh, uh, glory. So when we say to our children, no, you can't have that. No, you can't do that. It's not just about us saying, here's a rule, you better keep it. It's there's something better. And that's not the way to get there. And so I'm willing to tell you no, because it is for your good. Because it will ultimately free you and liberate you and empower you and help you mature and grow. It is not a weak or sentimental love. It is not a manipulative love that says, I'm doing this because you make me feel good. It's a strong love that says, I love you in spite of of all of your rebellion, anger, and rejection. I accept you as you are, but I love you too much to leave you as you are. I will lead you to something better. You are not God. (laughs) You cannot have your own way, and you cannot bend the world to your will. You need to learn to submit to God, because by submitting to God, you will find ultimate and full freedom in life. So so that's the pathway. We look at the the kind of the four ways that these questions are answered in in our homes, right? 
And there's a lot of things that we can do to explore this a little bit more fully, but um, this morning what I want to do is, as we wrap up, just, just throw three applications at us for how we can um, move from here as we consider how we've been raised and how we want to raise our kids. First of all, I think we need to apply the gospel to our own hearts. That's where it begins. Uh, if you're in an airplane and your cabin suddenly loses pressure, I'm gonna, here's a quiz for you to find out if you guys ever pay attention to the flight attendants. And, and your cabin suddenly loses, loses pressure and, and the little, ga- little mask, gas mask, little oxygen masks drop out of the ceiling. What are you supposed to do first? We all know. Put it on yourself, right? Why? You ever wonder why? It's because if you have a sudden loss of oxygen in the cabin, you're going to pass out while you're trying to put it on your kid. It's not going to do a whole lot of good while you're laying on top of him. You know? That's just not going to do him any good. You need to put the mask on yourself first. Then you're going to be able to think clearly to know how to help your child. You guys, this isn't just about fixing our kids. This isn't just about how can I do this right so my kids are better off. It's about how do I go deep in the gospel? How does the gospel change my heart? How does the gospel redeem what's been broken and hurt? How does it silence the the negative ripples that come from the way I was raised, but magnify the positive ones? How does it free me? So we need to go deep in the gospel to find the love and the affirmation and the empowerment that we need so that we can become more mature in our faith, stronger in our emotional well-being. So that we can stand strong as parents when our kids resist us, right? You need that kind of emotional uh, strength when your kids look at you and, and they say, I hate you. You ever had a kid say that to you? If you're a parent, yes. <laughs> Maybe they didn't say it with their words, but kids, I mean, that's wonderful. They can love and hate you at the same time. And when they're little, they're free, free to tell you about that. I hate you, right? Break your heart. You're like, man, I just gave birth to you. And you're telling me you hate me already? Uh, but, but that's the thing, man. We need to, as adults, have the emotional security and strength. We need to have the spiritual fortitude to be able to withstand the hatred of our children for their good, for their long-term self-interest, without ourselves being threatened and torn down and destroyed. We need to come with gospel strength to the raising of our kids so that they can learn to stand in gospel strength. Because our kids don't become who we tell them to be, they become who we are. The ripple effects of parenting isn't about you always telling them the right thing. It's about you becoming the right person yourself. So put the mask on, apply the gospel to your own heart, go deep, grow strong. Secondly, honor your parents. Honor your parents. What does that have to do with my parenting? A ton, a ton. Oscar Wilde said, we start by worshiping our parents. Then we grow to resent them. And sometimes we forgive them. Most adults understand that progress. Our parents were flawed. They did the best they could in most cases, but they were flawed. And they didn't answer the questions of our heart as fully or as well as they could ever should have. But we need to learn to honor our parents. We can't, in pride, separate ourselves from them and judge them. We need to realize that we're broken too. We need to forgive them. Remember, this was the first commandment with promise. As you learn to honor your parents, you will let loose life in your own heart and in your family. Your children will benefit as you learn to honor your parents. I guarantee you. Because the grace of God will come in and it'll start silencing some of those negative ripples and it will amplify the positive ones. It will help you to understand which ones are good and which ones are bad. 
The third thing that I'm going to say is we need to make parenting worship. We need to make parenting worship. Now, be, be careful with this. I'm not saying we need to worship parenting. <laughs> That's what our culture does. We have a schizophrenic, in, schizophrenic nature of our culture. We, 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 we have delayed get, having kids later and later and later. If you look at the average age of when people are getting married and having kids, it's later than it's ever been because kids are an inconvenience and they get in the way of our low-maintenance, hassle-free lives. And then when we have them, we suddenly reorient our entire lives around them and they become the center of the universe and we put them on a pedestal and their success is my success and their, their good things are my good things and suddenly my entire well-being is wrapped up in the fact that they succeed or they fail. If they succeed, I'm a great person. If they fail, I'm a horrible failure. We, we worship parenting. I'm not saying that we should do that. In fact, we should reject that. Instead, we should make our parenting worship. What I mean by that is... is that we need to recognize that God's glory is greater than our children's happiness. That our ultimate pursuit is not their happiness, but their holiness. Their happiness is on the other side of holiness, to put it like Driscoll puts it. Our goal is to lead them into a right relationship with God. Right? And we worship God by recognizing that even though we're inadequate as parents, His grace makes us adequate. We worship God by, by setting the right goals in place. Not that I will feel good about myself, but that God will be glorified in the way that I relate to my children. That they will become, by God's grace, adults who love God because of the way he's loved them. Not necessarily that they always behave the right way or look the right way or do the right things. It's not about the public image and the way it makes me look in front of my friends. That's selfish. It is a godly desire to see them move into everything God has for them for their good and God's glory, regardless how it makes me look. It frees me from condemning myself when I don't do well, and it frees me from puffing myself up in pride when I see things in them that I I want to claim for my own glory. When I make parenting worship, I give God the glory for the goodness of my kids, and it frees me to walk in grace. Ultimately, it will help me to have hope when things are out of control, because they often will be.